Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the opening of our second semester Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series. I'm Victoria Budson, the Executive Director here. As you know, our work at the Women in Public Policy Program focuses on closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health and education, where many organizations that focus on issues of gender look at what the gaps are and how to measure them. We predominantly, though we do do some of that work, we predominantly don't look at what they are or how to measure, but how to close them. And we identify replicable interventions which can be brought to scale to fundamentally close gaps in these areas. All of the work which our faculty partake of is focused on being applicable in the world and then policy translation takes place from that so that we're not just studying how to do it, but we're giving policymakers the tools to do it. In that vein, today we have Jenny Klugman joining us. She is a fellow here at the Women in Public Policy Program. She ran the, uh, she was director and ran all the work of the World Bank Gender Unit for many years before she came. We are so pleased that she is embedded with us this semester and I hope that she will stay connected to us institutionally and organizationally for many years to come. Today she's going to deliver a seminar on voice and agency, empowering women and girls for shared prosperity. She holds her PhD in economics from the Australian National University, as well as postgraduate degrees in both law and development economics from Oxford University. She's also a Rhodes Scholar, uh, and she is, in addition to all these things, completely lovely. We have enjoyed having her here so much. She's been a wonderful colleague already. And with that, Jenny, I turn it over to you. I want to remind everyone that, as always, the session will be podcast, so your voice and what takes place with the speaker will be recorded. Great. Thanks very much, Victoria. It's great to be able to present as part of the WAP, I'll use the acronym, series uh, today. And I'm very glad to be able to spend some time here as a fellow as well as uh, teaching a number of you. Um, it's great to see some familiar faces here today. Today I'm going to be sharing uh, some key findings of recent research that we did on voice and agency. Uh, the main headline coming out of the book which was launched by Secretary Clinton last year, is that expanding the voice of women and girls is integral to the global development agenda. When women and girls are able to stand up and be heard, to make decisions that matter to them, to their families, their communities and their nations, everyone benefits. So my remarks here today will have three broad parts. I'll start with some selected highlights from the book about why voice and agency matter and the scale of the challenge, hoping to stimulate your appetite to go and read the book. Uh, there are also cards at the back there which give you the easy link to be able to download it for free. Second, I'm going to present some more res recent research results which build on the book and look in more detail at some of the correlations we found. And third and not least, I'll talk about the implications for policies and programs, what we call promising directions. But I do want to start by clarifying what we're talking about. Voice is about women uh, or people being able to stand up and be heard to shape 
and share in discussions, discourse and decisions. Agency is about people being able to make decisions that matter to them, about their own lives, about their families, their communities and their countries. What the book does is focus on women and girls, many of whom have no say over, for example, whether, when and how many children to have, who are unable to buy or inherit land, who have no say in major decisions at home in their community, and whom, in their hundreds of millions, have been battered by their husbands. These are major deprivations of agency that both violate human rights and hold back development. In a very basic sense, this is not new. 188 states have outlawed discrimination on the basis of gender in a 1979 convention, CEDAW, the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination. 75 countries have constitutions that outlaw discrimination by gender. So this is the context within which we undertook this research. We were trying to address these challenges building on the 2012 World Development Report uh, put together by the World Bank. One of the basic conclusions of which some of you might recall was that voice and agency is a very important dimension of gender equality, but it was also the dimension on which there'd been the least progress over time. So this was a good motivation to try and get a better handle on what was happening. So in the gender group, we undertook a program of research over about 12 months, complemented quite by quite extensive consultations, engaged with a number of world experts in the field. So this resulted in the book that you can download for free uh, and a number of background papers, some of which are now being published in various journals, including The Lancet, Feminist Economics and elsewhere. This slide presents the table of contents of the book. I'm not going to go into depth in each of these topics today. You might be relieved to know. Um, <laughs> but you will see that we begin with the cross-cutting issues and then deal with a series of specific challenges, beginning with violence. There's actually a chair here, if anyone would like that one. Yeah. In most of the world, no place is less safe for a woman than her own home. What this map does is show regional rates of violence inflicted by intimate partners, that's husbands, boyfriends, which reach as high as 43% in South Asia. The total numbers are startling. Almost uh, 820 million women, that's close to the total population of Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, almost triple the population of the United States. These statistics clearly represent enormous human suffering and tragedy. And while human dignity is arguably priceless, intimate partner violence also has a high cost. So to help buttress the arguments about the costs of violence, we undertook work to estimate these. And what we found for a variety of countries that the cost of intimate partner violence range as high as 4% of GDP. That's equivalent to what many countries spend on, for example, primary education. So you look at the case of Peru here, um, the cost of intimate partner violence are more than double what the country is spending on primary education. It's important to note in terms of our methodology is that we're just looking at productivity losses. So costs due to absenteeism, for example, and reduced hours. We didn't estimate the health costs of treatment, the large damage to mental health and well-being, nor the costs that can be incurred in the judicial system and police and so on. These are just the productivity losses. So the question is, in the light of such enormous losses, why do such widespread breaches of human rights persist? 
And our major finding is that bad outcomes are being driven by regressive social norms and restrictive laws. And we wanted to see how these regressive norms play out at the household level. So we used the demographic and health surveys for 54 countries, which contain useful insights on this front. Norms like the women themselves accepting violence. It's okay to be beaten by your husband. Having no say in major household decisions like purchases. And being married young, before your 18th birthday. And these are the di different deprivations here. Often these are considered separately, but what we wanted to do was to look at the extent, but also the extent to which they overlap at the individual level. And the Venn diagram here illustrates the headline global results. The, the deprivations are extensive, so four out of five women suffer at least one of these deprivations across these 54 developing countries, across all income groups, um, uh, urban, rural, and so on. And that more than one in eight suffer all three at the same time. And then behind this global picture, there are countries where the situation is even worse. Here's the example of Niger, where virtually every single woman experiences at least one of these constraints. Only 1% does not face any, and almost half are subject to all three at the same time. So as Victoria mentioned, it's important to try and get a handle on what's happening, what's driving these results. And a common factor that we found was little or no educational attainment. What this infographic does is highlight our basic findings around education. That women with primary education or less are much more likely to suffer at least one of those deprivations than women who had at least secondary education or more. Likewise, for those who suffer all three deprivations, you recall that the average was 13%. It's 5% for those who have at least secondary education and 18% for those who have primary or less. I'll come back to the role of education in the next part of the presentation where we do closer analysis uh, using multivariate techniques. But suffice to say now that we also find that education or lack of education is also strongly related to lack of sexual autonomy and early marriage. So again, analysing these 54 countries, we find that 9 out of 10 university graduates say that they can say no to sex. Um, whereas only 7 out of 10 women with primary education uh, can do so. And here you have some uh, countries which show some particular results. So for example, um, in Mozambique, Cote d'Ivoire and Cameroon, um, very large shares of women um, who have no education being unable to say no to sex. Education is also associated with age of marriage. In fact, girls who finish high school are six times less likely to marry early. Far too many girls are wives and mothers. I think that many of you may be familiar with the global picture on this front. Um, globally, that one third of girls are married before their 18th birthday, one in nine before they <coughs> turn 15. And as I'll show later, this is also related to increased risks of violence at home. So going back to, to norms and adverse social norms, clearly this isn't a new idea, um, but the role of social norms does emerge as very powerful in the research that we did for the book. Social norms in the form of both formal structures of society, so laws and institutions, but also informal prescriptions of behaviour 
um, informal rules, uh, beliefs and attitudes. These norms define what's appropriate and desirable and what's inappropriate. And it's important to note that these are generally shared by both women and men. So, for example, the figures that I presented on accepting violence uh, is acceptance of violence by the women themselves. It's not the views of the men. And oftentimes when you look at those, uh, both of those figures for countries, uh, the, the rates of tolerance are higher among men. And these norms affect day-to-day uh, -day decisions, but they also reflect major life choices as well. And there are many examples around wife beating, early marriage and so on. But one point that I just wanted to make now is about how these are reflected in laws. Um, the World Bank undertakes a regular review um, to assess the extent of discriminatory legislation on the books. Actually, Sarah Iqbal recently presented uh, the most recent results here as part of the WAP series, so some of you may recall the highlights. So these legal differences relate to, for example, obtaining an ID card, restrictions on owning or transacting property, establishing creditworthiness, getting a job. Um, in 2013, uh, 128 countries had at least one of these restrictions on the books. 56 countries had at least five differences. 28 countries have more than 10. So very extensive uh, extent of legal discrimination around the world. And this gives you a sense about the types of discrimination um, which, are, which are on the books. But as I'll come back to in the last part of the talk, there are signs of hope, um, much greater prominence now of addressing um, legal discrimination and I think signs of momentum um, of change and progress on this front now. So turning um, back now to what we can learn empirically. Um, I wanted to begin by situating this work in the growing literature on, on measuring women's agency. And this literature has important commonalities. It's very much influenced by the Nobel Laureate and Harvard professor Amartya Sen. Um, not surprisingly, it takes a multi-dimensional approach. Um, the literature has been very interested in explaining agency and taking care not to equate agency itself with assets. Um, so trying to look at agency itself and then looking at the preconditions uh, for its exercise, like for example having education or having access to land. Uh, Nyla Kabir from SOAS, some of you may be familiar with her work, has done some important work in this area and she emphasises very much the importance of context. Uh, she's done some recent work on pathways uh, to empowerment which empirically explores patterns in three countries and shows the value of this really quite rich approach. Uh, there's important work by Sabine Alkaire and colleagues at the Oxford and Poverty uh, Human Development Initiative and she's been trying to get it again the conceptual issues but also measures and trying to capture control and choice. Recent work in Chad for example and informing new work on the measurement of women's empowerment in agriculture for example. So these strands of work are very useful but what they've done is rely on special surveys for the work that they're doing. And what that means is that the country coverage is inevitably limited. So, for example, Nyla's work here is for three countries. Uh, Sabina's work here, there's detailed work for Chad, for example. The Women Empowerment uh, Index is being done in food insecure areas of a few countries where the US government has programs. So quite limited in terms of coverage. And so because our interest is in global and regional challenges um, and patterns, we looked around for alternatives. And so one possible way, which initially appears quite attractive, is to use measures which are available, for example, from the Gallup World Poll, which simply asks, 
do you feel free to live the life that you choose? Which, for those of you who are for me with Sen's work, is quite similar to the way that he frames uh, freedom and agency. And Gallup asked a question which is quite close to this, and so in theory then, and also because we had access to the micro data, um, we could get quite a direct um, measure of agency. Um, the problem, however, is that when you look at the results, they actually don't make sense. <laughs> um, and I give the example here of Mali, um, where in Gallup, um, the vast majority of women say that they feel very free. More women than men say that they feel free. Um, but we also have data for Mali which shows, for example, very high rates of violence, very high rates of child marriage, and other objective data which suggests that women, um, in this context, um, uh, uh, kind of illustrating the problem of what Sen also recognised of adaptive preferences, you know, so framing your situation, your extended freedom relative to kind of what you know. Um, uh, and this reference group. Um, there's other work, for example, by Carol Graham, um, the, who's at Brookings, about the happy peasant <laughs> and the miserable millionaire. So there's quite a lot of work around this about how kind of a sole reliance on subjective data uh, may not be the best way to go, and it didn't seem to be a sufficiently robust basis for the work that we wanted to do. So in this context, what we concluded is that the best source of data for cross-country analysis is really the demographic and health surveys. Um, some of you may be familiar with this, the nationally representative household surveys uh, that collect information on a wide range of indicators. The indicators importantly relate to what people say they do. So for example, can you refuse sex? Can you ask your partner to use a condom? Rather than more kind of abstract um, concepts like do you feel free? Um, we have data for 57 countries, less for some items of interest, I'll go through that. Um, and we also have countries in the sample um, which fall into the category fragile states, um, as, as the World Bank calls some kind of conflict affected states, which turns out to be quite interesting in the analysis. And so looking at the specific variables that we have, um, I won't go through all of these in detail, um, but you can see here kind of what the interesting questions are, how they're framed. Um, we looked at the correlations across these um, and limited our analysis to those which add value. So we didn't want ones which were too correlated. Um, so correlations of less than 40%. Um, they're, they're around both the attitudes towards violence for a smaller number of countries, the actual experience of violence around sexual autonomy, um, early marriage, and then interesting ones around mobility, being restricted in terms of movement by your husband. Of course, the DHS is not perfect. Um, no data, especially that which has already been collected and available free online, is going to be perfect for the purposes of uh, your own analysis. Um, in our case, I've listed the disadvantages here. Um, they're worth bearing in mind. They weren't fatal, um, but um, uh, it's, it's something uh, to take into account as we, um, as we proceed. So, for example, we don't have any information on girls. Um, it's 15 to 49, we don't have information on girls, um, we don't have information on income, we have information on assets. Um, I won't go into this in detail, but we can come back to that if you like. So let me just go to kind of the results here um, and the key deprivation averages for the country groups. Uh, this is using the World Bank um, thresholds in terms of cutoff. Green is low income, uh, lower middle income uh, and upper middle income. So these are the deprivations that we're looking at, early marriage, condoning violence, experiencing violence, not having control over uh, resource decisions, 
restrictions on movement and not being able to ask your partner to use a condom. And you see this broad association here between kind of the country group and um, these outcomes. Could you just give quick illustrations of what's low, low mental? Uh, so low would be most of the countries in um, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, plus Afghanistan and Timor-Leste, for example. Um, uh, upper middle includes Colombia, Dominican Republic, um, Peru, um, and Colombia is actually, these are population weighted, so Colombia kind of affects, and then lower middle income includes, for example, India um, and, and so on. Um, uh, but what we see here, I guess not surprisingly, is that the low-income countries generally come out the worst on nearly all dimensions, although you can see on the condom use, it's basically the same as the low and middle income. Um, and uh, the differences are really not very large for this expenditure decision one. I'm going, this is just to give you a little bit of an initial sense. Um, but here we look at a, a simple cross-tabulation, um, looking at different individual level variables. So this is education, location, urban, rural, and wealth quintile, uh, poorest through the richest. Um, so a few things kind of jump out initially, even hopefully for those of you at the back of the room. Um, so education seems very important. So you can see that the rates here for those with no education relative to higher systematically kind of different across these different ones. So fewer than one in 20 university graduates married young compared to two-thirds of those without education. The reported rates of experiencing violence, 42% um, for those without education, 13% for those who graduated. And the interesting thing here is that even those with only primary education seem to be doing better than those without education. We'll come back to this later on. Looking at the wealth status, you can see that generally that makes a big difference as well across the different um, uh, deprivations that we're looking at. Location is also a big marker, systematically worse for women in rural areas. An interesting exception is mobility here. Um, so the average is 31, and if you look across the different groups, both for education, rural, urban, and also for the wealth groups, there's actually not much difference here. Um, and so we'll come back to this again very uh, later on. Um, uh, but just to remind you of what the question is, this is where husbands limit contact with friends or family or insist on knowing where she is. So this does seem to uh, imply quite significant restrictions, um, not varying very much uh, across these sorts of groups. So these initial kind of correlations, I think, are suggestive and they point to possibly some important factors. So what we try and do is examine this more systematically um, using econometric analysis. And so what we do is look at kind of four sets of characteristics. Uh, the women's own characteristics, because we have age, education, and so on. Um, we have characteristics of the husband. Um, we have household characteristics, so whether or not um, uh, the, it's an extended family situation um, and uh, household wealth. And then we have country fixed effects to try and take into account the context and then a, a dummy as well for, for fragile states using the bank's um, <coughs> categorization. So we use a logit. So we're looking at the likelihood of experiencing these different um, deprivations. And we look initially at um, condom use, uh, expenditure decisions and mobility. And then we look separately at intimate partner violence. And so looking here at the results, and I'm a, apologies for the font, um, 
here, but let me just go through the, um, the major results. All these coefficients are significant at the 1% level. Um, so you would normally see kind of triple asterisks here, but that would make it even more difficult to read. Um, so I'm just going to highlight six main points, and I'm happy to share the tables with you as well. So the first, and I think quite interesting, is that we have a series of negative findings around marriage. Um, so relative to the base case of living together, and not married, being married, either a monogamous or a polygamous marriage, reduces sexual autonomy, and being married as a child um, further reduces sexual autonomy. The second important point is around education here. Um, so it does confirm that education plays an important role, but I think the important or the interesting point that emerges here is that the effects are especially marked for secondary education and above, not much impact of only primary education. So, for example, in completing secondary education, improves sexual autonomy. Um, this is our condom question, uh, two to threefold. Um, and husband's education is also important, um, although to a lesser extent. Um, interestingly, on the husband's one, it's only higher education for husband uh, that makes it makes a positive difference. The other ones don't seem to make much difference. So broadly speaking, if you're just glancing at this, um, basically if it's over one, it's worsening, and the lower the number, the better. That's reducing the probability. So that's the way to interpret these uh, these coefficients. So for example, the higher education one here, um, so 27% as likely as someone with no education to, for example, uh, not be able to use a condom. So basically a lower coefficient is better, higher is, higher is worse. Um, I have a question for work paid outside of the home. Mm -hmm. um, you have paid in kind, paid in cash, or paid in kind in cash. Mm -hmm. Are either of those like a, any sort of one of those direct deposits where it goes into bank accounts or savings? That we don't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah, um, in terms of control. But I'll go through those real. So the first ones are around... Um, marriage, then education. Third, on uh, wealth. So as we saw in the cross tabs, uh, women in richer households are more likely to be able to exercise agency. But interestingly, the impact is not very large. Um, so the way to interpret these coefficients here, which are a little bit less straightforward, but just believe me when I tell you what, the, what they mean, is that um, moving up one quintile, so for example, from the poorest, from the bottom quintile to the fourth quintile, um, increases the odds of being able to ask, for example, for a condom by 2%, which is much less, for example, than the effects that we saw of education, um, marriage, and so on. Um, the findings around work are quite interesting. Um, and the kind of interesting point here is that economic opportunities seem to actually have quite mixed effects, which is also consistent with what Nyla Kabir, for example, found, that, and that context is important. So being paid in cash... Um, increases sexual autonomy um, and has stronger effects as well on being able to make purchases, um, presumably because there is this control over um, cash. So it increases that likelihood by 60 to 70%. But um, the freedom of movement is actually worse for the women who work. Um, so this suggests con controlling behaviour on the part of partners um, for, for women who work, um, which is consistent as well with some of the other research which has been done on intimate partner violence, occasionally in, in some contexts worsening for, for women who work. Um, possibly, yeah. On that point, um, two or three slides back where you showed um, country wealth, mm -hmm. I noted that when country wealth increased, 
uh, intimate partner control of movement increased. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you had a narrative around that, and then how it interplays with this, that as women work, that we're seeing um, an increase of control of movement. Um, those two things might be related, but we haven't explored that. Um, the result on worse outcomes as, or kind of less improvement outcomes as income in, increased for our sample seems to be driven by Colombia, where there are a lot of controls and it's a big country in that uh, subsample. Um, so that seems to be what's going on. Um, uh, there are also countries, this is I guess from other work, um, that I've done Muslim majority countries where there are more controls on work which are moving, you know, doing well, better in terms of kind of income per capita and so on. But it would be kind of interesting to look yeah. to bring those two things together, which we haven't actually done yet. Um, in terms of the household characteristics here, um, there's significant effects, but they're not very large. Um, the female-headed household one is kind of as expected uh, in terms of autonomy. Um, the finding about um, uh, nuclear, um, people in nuclear families being kind of better off um, <coughs> relative to extended families is consistent with other research as well around kind of the role of mothers-in-law having control in the family and so on. Um, and then finally, we have a series of results around um, the fragile states. Um, and these are quite interesting because the results, again, are significant, but they're mixed. Um, so living in a fragile or conflict-affected state um, reduces women's sexual autonomy. So it reduces the um, reported ability of women to ask their partner to use a condom by about a third. But it increases um, their control over spending decisions at home. Um, and it also increases their mobility. So the likelihood that the husband can control their movement is actually halved. And that, again, is consistent with so, some other research about the relaxation of some norms and constraints in, um, in post-conflict context by Patty Patesh and, and others. So let me move along now to the intimate partner violence. Um, here the analysis is for a subsample of countries which had the question on the actual experience of violence. Uh, it's not just the attitudes towards violence. It's 22 countries. Let me, I won't list them all. Let me just mention a couple. It includes India, includes Kenya, Nigeria, Tanzania, a few countries in um, Europe and Central Asia, as well as in Latin America, Colombia again, for example. Um, the independent variables that we had are basically the same as before, but we have some additional controls. So we have husband's alcohol use, um, we have experience of violence as a child, um, and we have information, external information, about whether or not there's a law on the books in the country <coughs> against violence. And the findings that we have are broadly consistent with the literature, um, including a recent meta-analysis by Karen Devries and colleagues that was published in Science last year. So key risk factors include alcohol, so if the husband's often drunk five times more likely. Um, women's own attitudes towards violence are very important. Um, their exposure as children is very important, again, confirming earlier uh, research. The circumstances of marriage matter. So being married young as well as being in a polygamous relationship um, increase the risk of IPV by around uh, 20%. And living in a fragile or conflict-affected state increases the likelihood of intimate partner violence by about a third. 
but we do also have, so they're all quite consistent with the existing literature. Um, we also have, I think, uh, some additional findings which are a bit more nuanced, I just wanted to mention. Again, around education, what we find is that it has a protective effect, but it's only evident at the secondary levels and above. It's not evident for, for primary and below. Um, and again, it's with higher education for men, not primary or secondary education. Um, living in a richer household does make a difference, um, but the effect again is not huge. It's less than uh, 2%, it's only 1.5% moving to the next richest quintile. And then finally and interestingly, and something that we have in the book as well, is that people who live in, or women who live in countries where there's domestic violence legislation in place, um, are less likely to face violence, 7% um, less likely to be subject to violence. So, in sum, uh, Completing secondary education and beyond has consistently large positive impacts, so that underlines the post-2015 development agenda, kind of pushing beyond uh, primary schooling. Um, the expansion of agency does have positive links with the poverty reduction and economic growth agenda, but clearly alone it's not enough. Um, women living in richer households are more likely to be able to exercise agency, but the impact is not as large as education, for example, as I mentioned. And women's own economic opportunities and earned income can have positive effects, but again, possibly not as large as expected and with mixed results for mobility, um, as we saw. And then the final thing just to highlight from the econometric results is um, the importance of child marriage, and that being associated with the increased probability of these various deprivations, which again supports the increased international attention on this, uh, on this pervasive phenomenon. So, the picture is, I think, very sobering. Um, indeed, in some ways, I think the evidence, this empirical evidence about the extent and the um, overlap of agency deprivations is quite shocking. Um, but the good news is that promising directions are emerging. And what I want to do in the final part of the presentation is just uh, highlight some recent experiences that show how change can come about. The broad areas that we cover in the book, uh, in chapter two and elsewhere, are outlined on this slide. Um, given the centrality of social norms in shaping behaviour and outcomes, we were especially interested in promising directions in changing norms. And you can find more details in the book. I'll just highlight some selective examples here. Um, one kind of cross-cutting finding, if you like, is the importance of broad-based participation in the change process. So men and boys, community leaders, family elders can be key allies and stakeholders. And in fact, programs that are limited and engage only women are more likely to bring more partial results. And we have examples about interventions engaging early with boys um, and highlight some success stories from around the world. So what about some specific examples. Um, here I'm just going to highlight less than a handful, but there are, I think, a, a growing number of promising approaches that are being both tried but also rigorously evaluated around the world. Tostan is one that's a community empowerment program tackling uh, female gender mutilation in Senegal, now operating in literally hundreds of African communities um, and working uh, towards change. Uh, program P um, is part of the global Men Engage campaign and it's promoting changes in norms among men and particularly young men around masculinity, caregiving, 
violence and so on. Um, and then there's more recent results from Sasa uh, from Uganda showing how community engagement um, around changing gender norms can be very successful in reducing rates of violence, actually halving rates of violence in that case. Um, and you can find fuller details and other examples in the book. What we also see is that uh, there's change on the legal front um, and that progressive laws and their enforcement can help to create change. That legal guarantees of gender equality are expanding and I've mentioned seed or already and how these can be used as tools including by women's groups to promote change at the country level. Um, these international agreements call on countries to implement rights in domestic law, which many countries have done. Um, and many more constitutions now than prior to, for example, 1995 include guarantees for gender equality, although a number of them still have exceptions for traditional and customary law. And just to show this uh, graph here, which again is taken from Women, Business and the Law, um, this is the number of countries which have laws on the books against domestic violence, which has risen from one in 1976 to 76 uh, in, uh, in 2010. Um, however, only fewer than 40 of these countries, actually only 38, have specific laws tailor-made um, to address uh, marital rape and rape within marriage. So this is kind of domestic violence more broadly. Not all of these countries have specific <coughs> provisions against rape. Of course, laws alone are not enough, but they are an important start and they can make a difference. And we saw that in the econometric analysis about having the laws on the books seeming to be associated with them. Um, uh, reduce probability of violence. Do the legal reforms um, provide equality for both men and women with regards to domestic violence? Oftentimes. Um, but these ones here are focused on women. Um, but the ones that I'm familiar with normally have both. Um, the other finding from the book about the laws, which is not surprising, is that the longer the legislation is in place, that makes a difference as well. Um, and then finally here across the policy areas, I just wanted to highlight some results from the work that we did with colleagues at George Washington University. So we recently completed the first global systematic review of reviews of evidence on the effects of uh, gender-based violence prevention. This has just been published in The Lancet as part of their special series. Um, and what the review did was identify 179 impact evaluations. Um, with the caveat that the vast majority of these are actually from developed countries and the vast majority of those from the US. Uh, so it highlights the importance here of more systematic efforts to evaluate interventions in developing countries to document what works. But I think there are some important findings which are quite robust, including for developing countries that emerge. Um, and then on the prevention side, there are, these are the key findings here about targeting both men and women. Um, having multiple components, um, deliberately addressing norms involving the wider community and spanning longer time periods. They found a number of interventions that were really very short in time, maybe a one-month radio campaign or something that was really quite brief in duration. And all of those, I think, bar one, were not shown to work. Not surprisingly, again, but I think underlining the importance of uh, sustained efforts. Um, and then finally, but not least, and something to which I've already alluded, is that change requires more and better data um, and new measures to track progress. We, so we can learn what's making a difference and so that we can be held uh, to account. And on the agency front in particular, 
in uh, gender equality, there are a num number of gaps on the data side, and I've already alluded to those. But here again, I think there is good news. Um, agreement has been reached at the international level on core indicators, which include some aspects which are interesting from an agency point of view. Um, and internationally agreed indicators on violence against women have also been agreed. So there's a dozen of those, the methodology and the um, uh, the protocols and so on have been developed and those are now being piloted by UN Women. So I think that kind of the basis is there in terms of standardisation uh, to enable, I think, some of these key gaps to be able to move forward. And then to complement these kind of broader indicators, it's clearly very important to have the evidence about what works and what doesn't work. Um, we launched last year at the at the World Bank uh, the Engender Impact Site, which brings together knowledge about this, including on violence, and that's part of translating research into action, which is very much part of the WAP uh, mandate. And another example, of course, is the Gender Action Portal, uh, which is extremely valuable in bringing uh, this evidence to bear in, in, in what we do. So let me stop here, and I'll welcome your questions and feedback. Can I stay here? Wherever you'd like to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no chair, so I guess yeah. I will. <laughs> um, I thought an interesting from the initial part that you showed was that how um, women who, so a long education, there's really no difference in restriction of movement, but you have this distinction in, uh, in partner violence and acceptance. But restriction of movement is a form of intimate partner violence, and it's, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's through control, right, and fear that that's perpetrated and so it's not clear to me that that's actually a difference in the levels or levels of condoning but rather a difference in reporting mm -hmm. the stigma attached to it. No, I think that's a really good point point. Um, and unfortunately I think they'll kind of design with different um, kind of motivations in mind because it's the DHS they also have questions about whether or not you can go to a health facility and so on on your own and so they weren't really connecting it to kind of controlling behavior in the way that intimate partner violence is but I think it's a good point it'd be good to make the link and then see how that works as well um, especially since uh, there seem to be different factors going on with mobility as well so to understand that there's a lot of hands. Um, so I'll just go around and then come back. Hi, I work in Western Nepal where a lot of women can't even recognize that what's happening to them is marital rape or sexual violence. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, when do you see a switch between a gender-based violence law being put in place and the recognition of I have a right to report or I have the resources available to go report this? Is it the law or is it more of the education system waiting for it to catch up? Well, the reporting rates are still terribly low. You know, they're in single digits. There's actually a discussion about that in the book in um, Chapter 3. Um, so we have... Um, so there's a bunch of countries where the laws are on the books where um, in single-digit percentages women are reporting um, rape. And um, there's also questions actually asking them why they don't report. And so sometimes it's um, kind of shame um, and stigma. Sometimes it won't make any difference. Sometimes it's because they don't know where to go, but we have some analysis of that. Um, but I think there's a huge gap between um, uh, having the law in place and reporting, but there may be an interim step where there's awareness that it's a bad thing. So for example, I was interested, I was actually looking earlier this week at the Gallup data because they have questions on, do you think a rape should be reported to the police? because I thought that would be kind of interesting and there'd be a lot of country variation. Um, and I looked at a bunch of countries and it was all in the 90s. 
so very high. So in theory, people, I think, in a whole range of countries realise that it's illegal and it's a bad thing. This is including marital rape. Um, but, um, but they're not going, you know, the next step to report it. So I think understanding how that comes about in practice is, is really very important. Um, I mean, there are criticisms of kind of criminal justice-based approaches, but I think laws do create a very important signal in terms of kind of what's acceptable and not acceptable. Um, but if you look in the book, you can see the stuff about reporting and why people don't report. Hi, I had a question. Um, thank you for your presentation. I'm not sure if I missed it on your slide, but was there a correlation between access to contraception and mobility and sense of agency in terms of childbearing um, having an impact on We didn't look at that one directly here. Um, so it's... Uh, access to contraception. You talked about condom use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, so we did look at that in the chapter four in the book is on sexual and reproductive health that I didn't really talk very much separately about today. And so um, access to contraception is clearly important. Um, and there are different sources here. So you can use the DHS. You can also use, say, Goodmarker, which has these estimates of unmet need. Um, and I think there are important kind of correlations there um, that we do that we do explore, but we didn't kind of link it directly here to fertility and kind of birth spacing and stuff. We were all looking, looking more at kind of whether or not women um, had the, felt that they had the capacity to be able to ask. Um, ask, well, say no, <laughs> say no to sex and then also ask a partner to use a condom. So it was kind of more in terms of kind of decision-making power. I think, yeah, Hella, then two down here. Yeah, we did. We've got, um, although I haven't fully digested, we have, um, there's a question on uh, actual and desired number of children in the DHS, and then, uh, and then we have number of kids as well. But I don't think it came out as particularly important. Uh, so number of kids here. Um, so they're better off in terms of purchases and worse off in terms of movement, not significant here on the condom one. And then the difference between the ideal and actual number of purchases, uh, purchases, children. <laughs> I have expensive children. Um, uh, and uh, they're, uh, they're worse off there. Um, but that's another, you know, I think that there's more that can be done. And I'd encourage you all to kind of think about kind of research questions in this area. There's, there's much more to do. Um, uh, so here and then. So I come from an education background, mm -hmm. so I'm really pleased to see the effect of, of education and, and protecting women. However, I'm sort of wondering at some time, is it a cause or is it an effect? So if a family wanted to marry their child off early, then she wouldn't be able to mm -hmm. go to mm -hmm. school. Or if the country is not supportive of women's rights in general, they may not allow a girl sure. to go to school. Yeah. No, so I think... Um, and at the macro level, I showed kind of the patterns of child marriage and uh, patterns of enrollment and 
the fact that girls who finish high school are much less likely to be married, but there's obviously causality kind of problems there. You don't really know what's, what's driving what. Um, at the same time, um, we can look at um, on the... Uh, actually, the early marriage one is not there. Um, uh, when you look at kind of more careful work looking at um, what's going on, is going to have to work up kind of what contextual factors are actually making a difference. So some of them have to do with kind of norms um, about marriage as well as norms about the values of girls' education and economic opportunities and, and a whole bunch of things. So um, I think that you're right. But I think that for the education camp, if you like, there's a lot of other good evidence here in terms of education. Um, I think on the, on the child marriage specifically, it, it is a bit tricky in terms of the causality. I think you're right. Caroline, and then we'll come to yeah. No, it's a good question. I mean, we don't have the kind of qualitative uh, information or analysis to really kind of fully understand what's what's going on. Um, it does seem, though, that the uh, if there are awareness campaigns, they're making more of a difference for more educated women. Um, but you know, overall, it could be making a difference as well. Um, but remember, in the regressions, it's controlling for other stuff. Right, so it's controlling for um, uh, income and location and these other observables that we have as well. Um, the, hi. I have one comment and one question. Mm -hmm. um, I want to comment on, on Lindsay's question about the laws versus raising awareness and reporting rape. And one of the things that we, we saw in Sierra Leone was that um, it's a good case study because they had laws on domestic violence on the books, mm -hmm. um, very low reporting rates and awareness around rape. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so these special centers um, with specially trained personnel, often women, um, really increased, uh, and that was done in conjunction with a, a huge campaign across media um, on raising awareness. And I think it's, you, you mentioned the fact there are actually many different um, programs working together mm -hmm. for the same goal. And it's just that physical infrastructure that women knew that they could go to a police station and not be confronted by a male police officer who wasn't specifically trained, um, and, and so there was a, a less intrusive kind of process. And there, we've seen now a huge um, mm -hmm. in, uh, mm -hmm. in reporting. So mm -hmm. Kind of interesting case study. Um, I had a question. Um, you mentioned customary law. Did you run the numbers um, taking, singling out the countries that have dual legal systems um, with the customary law? Um, again, Sierra Leone, many of the West African countries, they have. Um, you'll see um, customary law um, in 
parallel two systems. Mm -hmm. Did you see a difference there in um, in domestic violence and um, and some of the other factors that you pulled out? No, it's a good idea. We didn't do that. Um, but we could because we have um, from Women, Business and the Law um, that says whether or not, I guess it's whether or not there's a constitutional exception uh, for customary law, which I think exists in about a dozen African countries, if not more. Um, so we could do that. Right. It might be quite interesting. The sample might be a little bit small to be able to work out whether yeah, or not it's significant. That that, yeah. I think it has been, um, that's been raised as a factor, I think, of customary law, presence of customary law. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, thank you so much. I was really struck by the figures of the loss in productivity as a mm -hmm. percentage of GDP. Um, and I was wondering if you could, first of all, talk a little bit more about how that's calculated, how that data arises. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned it was just a function of, of absenteeism, people not right. going to work. Um, and then secondly, do you have any thoughts on if you were to factor in things like cost of health Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so in the countries where we have that data, there's special surveys which are done, so in Tanzania, Vietnam, Peru, um, they actually did um, surveys of women and so it included experience of violence and it asked them whether or not they were missing work. Um, one problem with the estimates that I didn't mention before is that for poorer women, or women who are not working, the costs are, the measured costs are lower, which is kind of, I think, a little bit problematic, but it's just something to bear in mind. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so basically it was a survey, so we knew both whether or not the women had been beaten up and then how many days of work she missed. Um, so it was self-reporting? It was, yeah, self-reporting uh, by the women. Um, and so there's two background papers. You can, there's one on Tanzania, uh, and there's another one by uh, Nata Duvre, um, which is Vietnam and a few other countries as well. So basically what it does is, um, does the survey, then you look at the overall kind of prevalence rates, and then you have, you know, the sectors in which women work and so on, and then you can estimate, I guess, somewhat heroically, you know, what the uh, economic costs are. But they are on the low side, I think, if anything, and conservative. There's actually a more recent, not more recent, it was available and we cited it in the book, another study that's actually published in Fiscal Studies um, of the UK. And what they did there was kind of more of a Amartya Sen type approach, so it was kind of capabilities and loss of capabilities and so on, um, and mental well-being. Um, and their estimate is 10% of GDP. Uh, taking taking all of that into account. So um, it's not difficult, you know, when you have prevalence rates of 30, well, they're, they're lifetime prevalence rates, but one in three women, um, it's not hard to get to <laughs> kind of relatively large numbers in terms of um, in terms of cost. So in the, in the fiscal studies one, um, they had questions around, um, uh, I think they're partly around kind of perceived loss of freedom and autonomy. Um, among the women who were getting beaten up. Um, and then they somehow also had kind of questions around kind of depression and mental illness and stuff, which is one of the, uh, I think, kind of well-known, well-documented consequences of um, gender-based violence. And then it comes up very large. So, but the fiscal studies one is one that I think, um, I don't know whether it's a gold standard, but it kind of gives you a better sense of kind of the total costs for the UK. Mm -hmm. um, 
So let me have a go at those. I think that on the um, kind of undertaking the work, the fact that the World Development Report had just been done, you know, was a platform. So it was there and it was kind of out there. So I think that gave us a good basis to, um, to be able to move forward. And I think that when you look at the WDR, frankly, it's a bit thin on the voice and agency side in terms of what the implications are for policies and programs. So that was quite a good motivation for us to, to pick that up. So that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, um, there was an increasing amount of interest from colleagues working at the country level, at the regional level, in these issues. Because they were seeing the ways in which, for example, 
with an employment program, it doesn't really work because the agency and the aspirations of the girls and the women who are in participating ostensibly in a vocational training program limits what they're able to do with the technical training. So I think an increasing realisation of how, you know, the potential complementarities and the importance of agency in terms of realising kind of broader development goals, even if we're only concerned about income and we're not concerned about anything else, unless you think about agency. So thinking about it purely from an instrumental point of view, it does make a difference. You know, so you can argue whether or not they're coming, you know, they're not coming at it the same way you or I would, but they're you know, still appreciating the importance of um, the issue, especially when you start talking about these sorts of magnitudes, which I think are really quite shocking and people realise, okay, so, so many of the clients in our countries, the female clients in our, these, our countries are facing, you know, these sorts of constraints in their everyday lives. So we have to think about, you know, if they can't go out, how are they going to be able to take advantage of, you know, either using public services or, or seeking work and so on. Um, and when in the book, what we tried to do was to highlight that the implications are really quite multi-sectoral. So it doesn't mean that you, the bank should be doing violence programs everywhere. But when it has, for example, an economic opportunities program or maybe a health program or a judicial reform program, we can be thinking about violence in that context as well, for example. Um, so thinking about ways in which, and education is another one. You know, So when we looked at the different programs which the bank did, we weren't really doing anything on education that was trying to address social norms kind of issues very directly. So we could make quite direct recommendations kind of to the bank in terms of programming about kind of the relevance of the work. And I think it, you know, it was a receptive audience um, and a lot of interest in the work. So we'll just see, you know, how it goes in terms of how it proceeds. The bank is actually doing some big projects now on GBV. So there's, um, there's a big one in there has been a big one in Brazil that was actually included as part of a development policy loan. Um, there's a big one in Dem Democratic Republic of Congo. There's big reproductive sexual health uh, programs now in the Sahel, including in Niger. So I think it's an area that's kind of gaining momentum, but I guess we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, and then on, the, on your second question, I'm not sure whether I fully got it, but I guess... Um, maybe because I'm an economist and a lawyer, I'm kind of a bit of a pragmatist as well. And I think that, um, I think the human rights and intrinsic arguments are very important, but if they're not getting you anywhere, you know, you've got 188 countries have signed up to CEDAW and, you know, we've got these sorts of kind of very overt discriminations and uh, breaches of human rights going on in, you know, so many countries in the world. So, you know, calling that out, I think is important, but also pointing out you know, why it's bad from a development point of view is uh, is something that can be usefully done as well. And the figures that we got, um, the kind of, we, we got a lot of good kind of media pickup and um, attention um, from the report. And one of the things that was really picked up was um, these figures on GDP, you know, as a share of GDP. So I think that um, it's like, you know, doing estimates of, um, productivity losses or losses to national income from women not participating in the labour market, you know, so you can kind of think about whether or not you kind of agree with, you know, why or how it's being done. But I think if it's getting kind of the message out there and bringing attention, it's, um, it's worth doing with policymakers. Um, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You know, I think you can yeah. push both, yeah. Uh, so there's two, three. We'll start. I was interested uh, when you were talking about what but it um, put an emphasis on programs for men and women. Mm -hmm. 
And I guess my question is two parts. The, mm -hmm. the first being, uh, is the emphasis on um, and women, uh, meaning sort of men, <coughs> men's programs are more important, or the opposite? That, uh, mm -hmm. Women's programs are sort of front and center, but right. also include men. Uh -huh. um, so just wondering what you know what, what the kind of balance was there, mm -hmm. and also um, sort of as a part of that, has any of the research in this book looked at the impact of women's of sort of feminist organizations and groups within mm -hmm. the countries under question, um, and working with those groups, or is it more about sort of women who are not in any way politically associated with a, a movement or mm -hmm. a kind of collective in their in their community? Mm -hmm. Is it more about sort of individual women and men within families? Mm -hmm. um, so on the first one, it kind of depends. Um, and so some of the programs that I mentioned, for example, the Promundo one, the program P is kind of with men. It's working with young men. Yeah. Um, there are other examples, like the Sasa one, is my understanding, so it's more community level. So, I mean, you may have separate groups and you may bring them together. So it's going to be very uh, context-specific. Um, I think the kind of the underlying point is that changing kind of norms and attitudes only among women is unlikely to be enough. So you have to work out ways in order to make that broad, more broadly shared in terms of change. Um, but what makes sense will depend, I think, very much on the specific context. Um, and I think in a number of cases it's actually done separately and in some cases it's done together. It, it kind of depends and it depends on, on, on the context as well. Um, we actually have a, cha I didn't talk a about it all today, but chapter six in the book is on amplifying voices. Um, and that's a lot about grassroots women's movements and so on. Um, and very much highlighting their importance, certainly in terms about bringing about kind of progressive legal reform, as well as in terms of accountability. Um, and uh, a number of examples there, so you can you can see that. But I didn't I didn't mention that at all today. Uh, two quick questions. You mentioned the importance of progressive laws and their enforcement. Uh -huh. I was wondering if your logic model unpacked that, because what's come up in this room is just the difference between those. So the laws are on the books, but if they're not enforced, there's probably a dramatic impact on reporting, and that trickles down and trickles. So in terms of, I guess, would be the next slide. Yeah. Um, well, we had, I guess, we don't have one actually on enforcement because I think it's actually quite difficult to measure. What we did have was the length of time that the laws have been in place, I guess, implicitly on the assumption that the longer they've been in place, possibly the more likely well, they are. Well, it's interesting that it feeds, like, the power of norms feeds back because laws can be, there's no, if there's not a synergy between laws and the norms, then the enforcement no, exactly. I mean, the example that I think we give in the book as well is Bangladesh has, I think, rates of child marriage of like 71%, and it's been illegal since 1924. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, um, so that's kind of, but then you do have kind of more positive examples. So, um, uh, it's, uh, I think it gets back to the question as well about kind of training and, you know, police and the uh, judicial system and so on as well to make it more receptive but um, we didn't we didn't really have a good kind of cross-country measure the only one we had was how long the law had been in place which does make a difference so um, but that could have to do with awareness rather than enforcement we don't really know what's going on and I think one interesting thing to note around awareness is also consequence when most women if they're reporting inter-household violence in some way an intimate partner violence, there's going to be a consequence beyond the legal consequence for that reporting. Mm. And so, like, what are the structures, what are the avenues and mechanisms that women have 
Um, is that their sole source of income? I mean, I think it's really sort of multifold, and whether that's playing out in one of the um, developing countries, um, you know, talked about in their porch, or whether that's playing out even in countries with really low intimate partner violence rates comparatively, like mm -hmm. the U.S. It's that whole constellation of factors in addition to the reporting, in addition to the awareness that really drive um, where the rubber meets the road in terms of policy to see if um, yeah, so I guess that's as well, when we commissioned the systematic review, we deliberately focused on prevention yeah. rather than responses, because given kind of the scale of the challenge um, uh, and given the under-reporting, um, getting at the prevention side is right. going to have much larger kind you of payoffs. Right, yeah. The intervention yeah. won't be needed, so. Yeah, yeah, well less done. needed. So there's one here and then Charles. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was yeah. really going to pick up on this. Um, the, what's the how, how you frame the argument question, mm -hmm. and, and also I, I like your idea of kind of getting you thinking about like how do you use this report? Mm -hmm. You know, I, it was so interesting to me. Um, the thing is, Sarah Iqbal came, mm -hmm. your colleague came and presented on um, the effective laws and how do you persuade some of these countries. And she, she was describing how one of the most persuasive things to get people to change some of the laws was showing them that actually some of these laws were not actually based on customary law or culture, but rather actually these are just right out of. You know, some colonial thing. Colonial yeah. stuff. Mm. These, these are colonial vestiges, mm. and when they kind of explain these were colonial vestiges, there was this willingness to right. kind of let go of these things. So it's sort of an interesting, it's a, it's a different argument than a pure self-interest or economics mm. argument. And then another interesting thing, just picking on stuff from the seminar, Robert Jenkins, the guy from Wharton, he's mm -hmm. done this really fascinating research showing that when you, um, and this goes back to your education thing that I wonder about, I, I, I get, um, Backing up for one second on the education thing, another theme people mm -hmm. have been talking about is, you know, is it education or what is it? Is it, is it education or is it economic power, frankly, right? Mm -hmm. So Robert Jenkins had this really interesting thing where he made available to certain rural villages in India um, advertisements about, or access to call center jobs mm -hmm. for young girls. Mm -hmm. And actually showed that that related to like weight gain for girls and the number mm -hmm. of hours that they had to do mm -hmm. housework and their education and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed like what they were perceived as was just economically valuable, mm -hmm. right? And so education could also not be raising people's awareness necessarily or changing social norms, but simply just giving them more bargaining power, mm. you know? Mm. Anyways, I, I just wonder, going back to like Sarah's argument, if this is the thing, you know, pointing out the colonial vestiges seemed to be the thing that was turning it. What do you, what do you feel like are, are the, some of the most persuasive arguments, either on the prevention side or the policy change side that, that you know, are making a difference? You know, are, is it normative stuff? Is it about, you know, get fathers involved in the household? Or, or do you think that this, you know, raising awareness of women's potential economic contributions? I'm just curious what you think is, is most persuasive across different contexts or... Well, I think it depends who you're talking to. So yeah, if it's course, kind yeah. of ministers yeah. of finance, you know, we had a finance minister, community, community of practice. Yeah. Um, uh, and there, you know, would be much more around the economic costs, the fiscal yeah. costs, and productivity potential productivity gains. If you're talking to women's groups, you know, it has to be much more kind of rights-based and, and focused yeah. on those sorts of areas. So I don't think there's an overall. No, no, no. Um, I'm just curious. That, yeah. Yeah. So I think I think it um, varies depending on context. I think that the the comparisons can help, like the peer comparisons. So showing outliers. Um, you know, by region or, you know, within a, a, a particular group can, I think, can help. Um, but also showing good practices as well. So there's the kind of shaming, but then there's also, um, 
if you like, um, kind of showing the feasibility, mm-hmm. I think, both of change and, you know, how it can benefit. And especially when it comes within relatively short periods of time, um, I think kind of demonstrating how that can be done. Um, but I think that the, the tricky thing is that clearly there are kind of major, major underlying structural constraints. And so uh, we can look at some of the programs which have appeared to work, but clearly as well it's a long-term you know, agenda. So we need to counsel, I think, patience um, as well as effort, you know, in order to be able to move the agenda forward. Um, so it's a bit of a balance. You know, on, there are some low-hanging fruit, but then, you know, there are major trees out there as well, which might be in the way. So it's uh, it's um, it's going to be a big challenge. I mean, but forgive me, just one follow-up. I mean, I think so. Part of the answer to your question is it's it's you know it's going to depend on the audience. You know, mm. it's going to depend on you know. I mean, that that, that it's very contextual and, yeah. and that, it, that it requires a multi-pronged agenda. And so, in certain contexts, what's most persuasive and compelling and important, maybe even grassroots, being around these normative arguments, but then. For moving, it's going to depend on the logic of the community, you know, and what's most persuasive mm. to them, I imagine. Yeah. Because your logic doesn't seem to be simply economic, it's mm. really multi dimensional. Yeah. No, well, hopefully it's a bit of a smorgasbord to yeah, yeah. <laughs> what they would like. Charles, I think, maybe the last one. Um, this yeah. might be beyond the scope of the data you have in mm-hmm. your research, but it seems like a lot of the observ- the, your observational data comes from heterosexual married women. I wonder if you had any data looking at lesbian, bisexual, or trans women, and if not, how you think that that identification might confound your variables? Um, as far as I know, the DHS doesn't doesn't collect that one, and um, it would be really interesting to look at. Um, I think depending on how they're kind of self-identifying or how many are, you know, you might run into... I mean, one of the reasons why we get such powerful results is that we've got really big sample sizes here, um, which kind of helps with the kind of power, getting kind of significant results. Um, but I think it would be, it's an area which is really, I think, underexplored, particularly for women, I think, even probably more so than, than for men. Um, so, but you can imagine, um, I mean, I guess it depends on the, the context, you know, the household context and the community context, and there'd be a bunch of other things that would kind of matter as well. Um, but as far as I know, the I don't think does anyone know whether the DHS has those questions. I don't think it does. No. Yeah. In terms of people identifying it, yeah, reporting, yeah. Yeah, so I think it would become tricky. I think the way to start would be doing more qualitative work, focus group work and stuff, somehow maybe working with civil society and so on and then trying to work it out and then on that basis um, some kind of research strategy. Um, but starting, this, I don't think this quantitative data would help you very much. Well, they know the World Bank just finished a report on the economic costs of homophobia in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the groups they looked at specifically was women. Yeah. So lesbian, bisexual, mm-hmm. trans women. Yeah, yeah, and I was involved a bit in that when it was uh, getting started, yeah. Jenny, thank you so much for such an incredible talk. And next Thursday, Jennifer Verdahl, the Montalbano Professor of Leadership Studies from Gender and Diversity from the University of British Columbia Scottish School of Business will be here to discuss from sexual harassment I have a few of these in my office, so if you really want a glossy copy, I can probably scratch one up for you. It's already there. Yes, and there are postcards there.